Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Mona Bennett, who is the Programs Director for the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition, and Dr. Richard Wilmot, who is the author of American Euphoria. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is called hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. For more information, you can go to our website to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is Mona Bennett. She is Programs Director at the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition. She's here waiting for us. Hello, Mona. How are you doing this evening? Um, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the show. Good evening. Well, thank you for coming by. I heard you were having some zoning issues uh, with uh, the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition. Can you tell us what's going on with that? Sure. Um, We've been in our particular building for almost five years, Um, and it is a former duplex apartment. Yes, we're running an agency out of a former duplex apartment, but it is perfectly situated for the work we do. It is very convenient to the people we serve. How can I weave these two together and not take six hours, which this is not a six-hour show? Um, We applied for and received Fulton County Human Services uh, funding. Uh, We actually did the work. Um, uh, Some of you out there in Radio Land may be familiar with the uh, Safety Counts intervention. Um, Well, let's just say um, Fulton County expects a whole lot for the amount of money they give us. and they have lots of compliance. Um, well, they have this big old compliance checklist, and that's cool. We all need standards and such. Uh, you know, we have accountability, and that's all right. Well, they um, uh, noticed that our building that we that our agency is located in uh, was not uh, zoomed correctly, and I guess they were obliged to um, to um. Uh, notify the City of Atlanta uh, Code Enforcement Department. Um, October 18, 2011, we received a uh, cease and desist um, notice. Uh, We had to stop the illegal use of the property, so we stopped. Uh, We stopped letting people come in for showers. We stopped our groups. We stopped the meals we served after groups. Uh, We stopped letting people in the building who wanted to try treatment or detox. Um, We stopped a whole bunch of stuff. Um, uh, And uh, were it not for our oh, and were it not for our mobile health unit, uh, looks like an RV, and that's a story in itself. How we got that? um, We would be dead in the water. But uh, luckily, we've been able to transfer some services to the. Um, uh, to the mobile health unit, but, um, you know, where do people come when they want to use a phone? Where do people come when they need to check email? They used to use our um, our 
um, computer lab or, uh, that's located in our building. Uh, where do people go for that? Where do people go when they need clothes? Uh, our clothing closet is now closed. So it's basically all drop-in services were stopped. Uh, yes, yes, all drop-in services were stopped. And what part of the code is this violating? Mm, well, the uh, building, which I said was a former duplex apartment, is zoned R4A, and that is straight-up residential. Um, we would need um, institutional office uh, zoning or, um, hmm, what was that other one that I learned about just two days ago, residential limited commercial. Uh, we would need something like that or a special use permit, which we have applied for just today. We finished the application and submitted it to uh, the city of Atlanta today. So does it look like that's going to uh, – does that look positive? Uh, I'm feeling very hopeful. I'm, um, we have the support of the community, the English Avenue community. Um um, and we attended a town hall meeting uh, uh, that the mayor also happened to visit, um, a well-placed question to uh, Mayor Kasim Reed, uh, actually got us the meeting with the mayor. And uh, now, that, um, now that the um, special use um, permit application has been submitted, we're waiting for um, the meeting with the mayor, Mayor Reed, to be set up. Well, that sounds good, and uh, we wish you all the best of luck on, you know, succeeding with this so that you can stay in your current location. Thank you. Um, we do have outreach sites, but um, over the years, and, and uh, the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition has been around just over 17 years, um, people came to us with various and sundry needs, and we've grown uh, to meet those needs. And um, 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 it's hard to get any kind of services or any kind of legal, uh, i.e., uh, paycheck stub job without an ID, uh, without birth certificates. Um, um, Sometimes people just want a cup of coffee and they want to come in and get a break from the elements, a break from the streets. Uh, I can't wait to provide those and other services again. Yeah, it's one of those things. I know how this goes when you're located in a location like that and you're serving a marginalized population, sometimes homeless people. You know, it's all word of mouth and it's all, you know, people know that it's there if it moves. Yes. Yeah then uh, people don't know where it is anymore. Indeed. Um, in fact, um, three years ago, uh, we had to move our outreach site, and um, and we lost people because of that. Luckily, we got to move back to our original site. Um, but um, but it, it, um, we have a significant drop in the people we see. Um, I've been a bit depressed to look at the recent stats, but um, um, earlier this year, um, until oh, October, uh, we were serving 800 to 1,000 people per month. And I know we're not serving anywhere near that now. Well, that's too bad. What do you think uh, has happened that caused that number to drop? 
Well, a lot of people think that we are closed, and I do want to put out that we are not closed, just we can't let anybody in the building. Our services do look different. Um, And I'm constantly uh, asking people, look for the RV, look for the mobile health unit, um, look for the battered white van. We're still doing our outreach services. Um, um, It's just getting that word out and... um, and just fighting the public perception that uh, we are closed. Okay, so the numbers dropped when when you had to stop the drop-in services. That's what happened. Uh, oh, ahead. yes, the numbers significantly dropped. Uh, uh, again, I'm I'm a bit depressed to even look at the, the current um, uh, statistics. Uh, I, I feel like it's dropped at least 60%, 75%. At least. Well, let me ask you some other questions. Um, last week we had Robert Childs on from North Carolina Harm Reduction, and he was telling me that the syringes in North Carolina are, are criminalized. They're not legal. They're considered drug paraphernalia. What's the situation in Atlanta? Well, honestly, we're trying to figure that out, so we're saying there's a question of legality. And uh, I am quoting from Official Code of Georgia Annotated, OCGA 16-13-32. It shall be unlawful for any person, corporation, knowing the drug-related nature of the object, to lend, rent, lease, give, exchange, or otherwise distribute to any person um, a hypodermic syringe or needle. But in the very next uh, paragraph, it says you can do the lending, leasing, exchanging if you're doing it for a legitimate medical purpose. Uh, We at the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition feel like trying to stop the spread of HIV, viral hepatitis, any other blood-borne diseases is a legitimate medical purpose, but we're neither lawyers nor pharmacists. And, uh, oh, by the way, we haven't had an arrest um, um, of staff or volunteers um, uh, at the site uh, in our 17 years, so the law hasn't been challenged. So that's why there's this question of legality, and it does resonate all all through AHARC. Uh, There are people who are scared to work with us because we we work with those scary old needles. Um, Yeah. we know it's affected funding. Um, oh. um, the stigma aspect is still resonating. But you can uh, you can exchange needles publicly. In, I mean, in your facility, and you're not bothered well, by I, the authorities. Um, in fact, we have a street corner um, a street corner outreach site. Um, um, we park our mobile health unit, we park the battered white Ford van, and we've been working in that spot for 16 years. Uh, the police do know about us. Uh, back in the day, oh, 16, 17 years ago, we really puzzled the Atlanta Police Department because it was, um, well, we were just a needle exchange then, Prevention Point Atlanta, did uh, puzzle, really puzzle the uh, police because it was me, and I'm a, 
if you hadn't met me, I'm a large black woman, and I tend to wear hats with lots of buttons and some condoms on it, and a lot of young white female um, Emory Rollins School of Public Health students um, in this, uh, how, how does law enforcement put it, a high-intensity drug trafficking area. We were neither selling nor buying anything. We were giving away these needles, giving away condoms, talking to people. Um, so uh, at first the police didn't know what to make of us. <laughs> but um, as our relationship uh, depends on the relationship, uh, excuse me, as our as the work we do depends upon the relationships we make, we eventually did make relationships with uh, the police, and we do our best to maintain them because, uh, well, a safer officer is a happy officer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we like officer safety. Uh, who wants to sweat a needle stick? No, you don't want to do that. Well, I know what you were saying, though, about, you know, needles being scary to a lot of people. Because you know, uh-huh. I wanted to, I wanted to study harm reduction because I knew that there was a need for harm reduction for alcohol. Nobody was really doing an alcohol harm reduction program. Where could I study? Well, the only place to learn was to go to needle exchange and volunteer. But I tell you, the first day I knocked on that door and you know I said I want to work here, you know, I, I'm just a Midwestern white boy. It was very scary to me. <laughs> As, uh, oh. Well, thank you for doing this work because actually um, the street name for our area is The Bluff, and there are a lot of drinkers in The Bluff. So so um, uh, I've been using – I've been um, – <laughs> well, my, my I've satisfied my quest. Uh, I am always on the, on the lookout for um, alcohol harm reduction, and here it is. <laughs> Yeah, now we can just get those doors open so we can have some groups about it and and tell people about it and show people the book, all that good stuff. <sighs> yeah, as I mentioned, it looks like we're we're going to partner with Vocal in Brooklyn here locally and uh, do an outreach harm reduction group to uh, the more marginalized populations. We already do have one group that's meeting uh, at a local church here in Brooklyn. But uh, we've been getting mostly people that find us from the computer on that. We're trying to do a little more active outreach in the community. And since Vocal has a storefront there, you know, we're going to try and work together and see if we can get a good alcohol harm reduction group going that will reach a lot of people out there. All right. Because um, um, I, I, I often uh, talk to people who, well, um, 12 steps, uh, AANA, just aren't for them, and and they're frustrated. So um, so I'm glad to refer you as a resource uh, to them. Um, uh, people just don't know there's anything else out there. I know. That's for sure the truth. And one other thing I want to say, you know, about uh, working in needle exchange, you know, after I was there for a few weeks, a month, you know, this is like my fondest memory of uh, Minneapolis. This was this felt like home after a while. You know, these were the nicest people that I ever interacted with. Were the people that were doing the needle exchanges? 
Indeed. I've had some of the best conversations of my life um, at our outreach site, um, in our outreach house. Uh, um, We've had people who are in are musicians to come and play and perform and sing. Uh, We had people who were musicians talk about their times in bands and musical groups and quintets, quartets, soloists. Um, um, We've talked about horses and horse racing and and what the falcons are going to do, what the braves are going to do, what the hawks are going to do. Sometimes somebody has a joke and then somebody else has a joke, and before you know it, it sounds like who's got jokes at the site. Um, uh, mm, And which, uh, uh, and another thing. (laughs) Um, People claim that people who use drugs are hard to reach, and just all of these conversations I've had, um, well, you got to get out of the office. Um, you got to get out from behind the nice desk and come to the streets. You got to come to the people and talk to the people as if they have a brain in their head. Um, I find the people we serve extremely easy to reach. Uh, um, and I don't think I'm all that as a harm reductionist, but, um, uh i one i let the people i serve teach me i um i've never shot up in my life so i had to ask somebody who knows uh the people we serve okay is this the right kind of syringe when's the best time to come out where should we be uh um show me how you tie that tourniquet on um i had to ask those kind of questions back in the day and i still ask those kinds and other questions because, again, I'm serving the experts. Um, If they had a way, they would probably be running the exchange. Um, But, uh, well, I managed to have access to some resources, so I want to make sure that I'm bringing the right resources to the people who need them. Okay, tell me about some of the other services that you offer at your uh, center there. Okay. Well, um, I think I mentioned the uh, safety counts intervention. Um, uh, We serve a lot of injection drug users that way, um, uh, making sure that people know how to protect themselves from HIV, hepatitis B and C, um, and sexually transmitted diseases, uh, infections, whatever they're calling them. Um, Also, we have voices. Oh, let's see video opportunities for innovative condom education and safer sex. Uh we've been um we've been uh, running that intervention for for African American women uh for yeah, about a year now. Um basically we show a video, we talk about the video, we talk about condom negotiation, we give women lots and lots of different kinds of free condoms, offer HIV testing and um and um and sort of follow up with the ladies informally to see how how it's going, how they liked whatever brand of condom they liked or how they didn't like what they didn't like and why. Um we also um uh do our own HIV counseling and testing and also we link people to HIV services who may come up positive. 
<sighs> um, we help people get into drug and alcohol treatment when they feel ready to do so, and not a moment before. Um, let's see. I believe I mentioned clothing closets, showers. Um, now, actually, one of our most popular services has well, it, it is harm reduction, but it's not sex or drug related. It's food related. Um, there's a very popular church-run food pantry on Wednesdays. So Mondays and Tuesdays, we're writing a lot of referrals for this particular church-run food pantry. That's our most popular referral. And uh, close second and third, and these two are probably tied, ID and birth certificate. Again, we are in a community that has a lot of needs, so uh, we're trying to help people meet those needs wherever we can. Uh, let's see, what else? Oh, oh, uh, we have some collaborations. Um, um, luckily, not all the county is, is as mm, persnickety as apparently the grant people. Maybe it's a money resource thing. Uh, we have a an excellent collaboration with the Fulton County Department of Health and Wellness, the health department. Um, for Tuesday of the month, they come through and do ski, uh, TB skin testing, TB germ skin testing. Uh, for Thursday, they come through and read those um, and read those skin tests. Um, also, on the third Thursday of the month, um, we have nurses that come by and give hepatitis A, hepatitis B vaccinations. Uh, we have, uh, I think they're still called disease investigation specialists who um, draw blood for syphilis testing. Um, oh, and those nurses also tend to give, let's see, um, Tdap uh, vaccinations. That's uh, whooping cough and tetanus vaccinations. You don't want the lockdown. Uh boost shots, and uh, pneumovax and, um, uh, vaccinations. So we're doing our best to uh, raise the public health bar in the community, making sure that people are safe from those harms. Uh, what else am I forgetting? Um, and then uh, apparently we're just known as a place where you can come in and take a break from the streets, take a break from the elements, and get that cup of coffee. Uh, we've handed out countless cups of coffee, and uh, it's interesting to hear how people like their coffee. Uh, um, there are those who have, um, uh, well, mind you, this is an eight-ounce cup, but they want, I don't know, eight spoons of sugar and seven spoons of cream. Um, but if that's the way they want their coffee, that's how they're going to get it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um Oh, goodness. Uh, well, let me else? ask oh, you, oh. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, uh, how about overdose? Are you doing any work on overdose prevention? Um, a little bit. Um, we're trying to get our naloxone program together. Of course, that takes resources. But in the meantime, we're having overdose groups. Uh, we're encouraging people, what we're we're teaching people how to recognize an overdose, how to respond to an overdose, and how not to overdose in the first place. These, these are things we can do in a group um, or do in individual settings. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, this zoning thing has really distracted us from a lot of things like that. Um, but we, um, we're planning on bringing naloxone um, 
uh, to the people as soon as we can, and especially, well, as soon as we can get our doors back open and uh, let the people in. Um, I know that in North Carolina, they got it going on. Project Lazarus, uh, Naloxone Access, uh, um, I, I admire their... I admire what they're doing with overdose in in uh, North Carolina. Yeah, one of the things that Robert Childs mentioned last week was that there was a summit on sex work in the South. Um, were you part of that? Uh, I was not, but we had a volunteer who attended, and and I believe she really loved it. I haven't <laughs> talked to her yet to find out her thoughts, but... Um, uh, I know a lot of the people who attended the summit, and they loved it, and I'm glad it happened because, uh, well, it looks like Georgia's trying to be a buckle or the buckle on the Bible Belt, and um, and um, people who, you know, for whatever reasons they get into sex work are being harassed and hassled and, well, beat down, killed, Um and a lot of it is well um uh, morality crap mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it's it's um you know you you do this certain work so you're no good uh and I don't know it seems like especially in the past few years uh um the policy makers who make those sorts of judgments well they're the ones getting caught with their pants down as it were. Yeah, that's true. You know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we look forward to having more more sex worker services, uh, especially now that we have the RV. Oh, let me tell you a quick story about the RV. It's a bittersweet story of how we got a mobile health unit. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you may be familiar with the uh, late lamented. Prevention works, um, and I believe at the time it was the largest needle exchange in the city of Washington D.C. They closed, uh, huh, uh, among other things. Um, the uh, city, District of Columbia, uh, was really, really, really late in paying them for their HIV uh, services. They were holding up $130,000, and it starved them. It starved them to death, Um, and I I still miss them. um, Anyway, um, when we found out that Prevention Works was closing, uh, we asked, well, what are you going to do with that RV? And and after all the bills got paid, I believe, um, we got... um, we got a chance to buy it, so um, um, and we got the money from uh, Mac AIDS Fund. So Viva Viva Glam, buy plenty of Viva Glam makeup and lip products. Uh, um, August, we went and picked it up, um, showed it off at our open house, which happened during the National HIV Prevention uh, Conference, and again, it's saving our butt now. Uh, without it, we would be dead in the water. And, um, well, once we get get settled, however we get settled, we're looking forward to taking our show on the road. Okay. Do you do any programs with crack users? 
Uh, yes. Um, and they are pretty homemade too. If um, at the very least, we're making sure that people have pipe holders. Um, we do. Um, we have a. Uh, we had a Wednesday group. Um, drug use education and substance use management, and um, we would talk. Um, we would talk about safer crack use. Uh, we would talk about how to take care of yourself while you're smoking. Um, and we still have these conversations individually. Uh, we don't have a a crack harm reduction kit per se, but um, uh, we do encourage people to um, to take the uh, the pipe holders. Uh, when we find donations of lip balm, we're handing those out. Um, we have a mm, we do have a brochure around safer crack use. Um, and we're talking to people about taking care of themselves while they're smoking, making sure they're eating, making sure they're uh, drinking water, making sure they're just sleeping when possible, especially when coming down. Uh, but it's not a formal program, and, well, there's always room to grow. Do you think harm reduction programs like this are a gateway into treatment? Yes, they are. Um I'm no treatment expert. Uh, we do have people on staff who have, uh, who come from a treatment background. They know people who, uh, they know the intake nurses at the treatment centers. That is important. Uh, again, relationships are everything in harm reduction. Uh, but even my non-treatment selves uh, have gotten people into treatment. And, um, and even if they relapse, um, we've talked to them about relapse. Um, um, they'll come back to us, Mona, and I'd like to try this again. Okay, let's try it again. Um, so, yes, it is a gateway into treatment. We are enabling people to get into drug and alcohol treatment. <laughs> okay, I see our next guest is here waiting in the calling queue. So, any last words you want to say to finish up? You got about one minute left. All right, AHARC Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition is still open for business. Sorry, we can't let people in. Uh, there needs to be more harm reduction in the South. Um, harm reduction is a good thing. Uh, take care of yourselves, love yourselves, reduce your own harm. Uh, those baby steps count. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Mona. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, I'm going to bring our next guest on the air right now. And Hello, Dr. Richard Wilmot. Are you there? Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. Welcome to the show. Is it? Should I call you Richard? Uh, fine, yeah. Call me Richard or Doc. Doc. You like Doc? Okay, we'll call you a Doc. How's that? Um, Richard, Richard Wilmot, PhD, has written a book. It's called American Euphoria, Saying No, K-N-O-W, to Drugs. And I've had a chance to skim through it a little bit. I haven't actually had a chance to read it as much as I would like to, but I've been looking at it, and it's about uh, safer drug use, about knowing how to use drugs so that you don't hurt yourself. And yeah. uh, and so I'm going to let you take it away. Tell us tell us about your book. Well, 
first of all, I'd like to wish you a uh, happy Bill of Rights Day. Oh, thank you. I didn't know it was Bill of Rights Day today. <laughs> Very important. Yes, 220 years ago today, the uh, Bill of Rights was amended by all of the colonial states. And one of those amendments, of course, is the right of protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. I think uh, our founding fathers would probably be spinning in their graves if they knew what was happening in terms of urine testing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That uh, that particular amendment has been terribly abused, along with uh, the Tenth Amendment, which um, says any power not specifically granted to the federal government by the Constitution is reserved to the states. When we had alcohol prohibition, we followed, you know, the letter of the law. We passed an amendment to prohibit alcohol. Then we passed an amendment to repeal prohibition. But with the drug prohibition, we didn't pass an amendment to prohibit drugs. All these laws, federal drug laws, are all invalid. Yeah. Well, uh, the uh, whole uh, Drug Policy Act, the Substance Control Act, the DEA, they all came about during the Nixon administration. And I believe he did that deliberately so that Congress would never have to act again. I think it was during his administration that uh, marijuana was, uh, for a very short period of time, legal. I think Timothy Leary was the one that brought a lawsuit all the way up to the Supreme Court. And... uh, they found that uh, that's exactly what happens is you have to be a witness against yourself, and it's a violation of the Bill of Rights. But, uh, you know, you had a program on a couple of weeks ago uh, about treatment as torture. Yes. And uh, I listened to that. It was excellent. I think that if more people knew about what was actually happening in treatment, they would start to question the whole concept of addictions, which is what my book does. Uh, It basically looks at the culture in which addiction occurs. And the culture is one that wants to produce this thing called addiction so that it can have its way with us. I'm talking about the establishment elite, Mm -hmm. uh, which, which, which use drug addiction for political suppression. So I think if more people knew about what actually happens in treatment and the degradation that occurs, that uh, they would start to ask questions, and that's what the book does. It asks a lot of questions. Well, I've been through uh, two treatments myself for alcohol, um, the one, the first one had some cognitive behavioral elements and was actually had some good points and had some bad points. The second was pure twelve step and to me was uh, made made me much worse than I had been when I entered. You know, uh, but we're we're going to talk some more about different treatments here. Um, the worst of them all are the synanon based torture therapies, which. <laughs> I mean, they're more restricted now than they used to be, but they're still used a lot for teenagers. Um, and then well, teenagers have no rights. They have to do that's what their parents say. They can get away with it. Pardon? I know, I know. The 
the parents can do whatever they want with their children, and that's the problem. That's why these uh, places can get away with torture therapy for teenagers. Uh, but there are actually some there are some good treatments too. Of course, there's substitution therapies like methadone and buprenorphine. And we're also going to be soon talking to uh, someone from from St. Jude Retreat House, which says there's no disease of addiction. It's uh, we 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 are educators. They say that we are educators, and we teach you how to live without needing to, you know, be addicted to a drug. And well, that's ex- what I do too. Yes, and they have uh, well. I'll leave that all for their for that show, but they have a very good success rate. And but let's I want to go on with your book, and I want to walk us through this a little bit, chapter by chapter. And you have chapter one is called the politics of euphoria. And what do you talk about in chapter one? Well, in, in chapter one, I'm talking about things like uh, the fact that when people get involved with substance abuse, they're getting involved in a cultural interpretation of what substance abuse is. And there are people in this culture, I refer to them as uh, protectors of the, or custodians of the Puritan ethos. And that ethos is one in which you are not supposed to have any pleasure at all. Pleasure is verbal. And the fact that we've had so many laws against drugs and against sex in this country means that pleasure is verboten. It's something that you shouldn't have. And so when people have drugs or have sex, they have a mindset in which they feel shamed and guilt. And as long as they continue to feel shame and guilt, they're going to have nothing but problems. The, the path to controlled drug use is to jettison the pain, shame, and guilt so that you can have some rational control over what you're doing. And that's a large part of what the book is about, is uh, bringing self-conscious awareness to the drug experience. And harm reduction has a whole set of uh, tools to allow that to happen. Now, for me, myself, um, well, I've got an interesting background that fits well with what we're talking about because I was born from, you know, the fundamentalist, the fundamentalist religion. That's what I grew up in, where, you know, you, you can't drink alcohol, you can't dance, you can't play cards. All these things will send you straight to hell. So it was very puritanical upbringing. And, of yeah, course, I... word culture. Mm-hmm. And I you know, developed a, well, a great love for alcohol, um, other things. Uh, you know, I became a supporter of uh, socialism and many other things that were not <laughs> in my upbringing. I had a lot of rebellion against my upbringing. I found for myself, eventually, the way to control alcohol was, you know, not to drink when I felt bad, not to deal with bad emotions, but to make it a way to, you know, um what, what's the word I want? I, when I have a positive... The mindset. Yes. Yeah, you're yeah. controlling your mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the principle of harm reduction, is to control the set, the set of psychological expectations about what you, ha- what you think the drug will do, and the setting, 
the social and environmental setting in which the drug is, is taken. And those are key elements in the drug experience. Of course, the first is the recognition of the sensations that the drug produces. And since we're a sensation-free country coming from a Puritan stock, it's hard to talk about sensations. You know, it's hard to talk about children spinning in the playground, for example, altering their consciousness without knowing it, without using those words. They're still altering their consciousness. It's hard to say, well, hey, I know what you're doing. You're altering your consciousness. There's nothing necessarily wrong with altering your consciousness, but the way in which you do it might be harmful. That's what harm reduction is all about. Not abstinence-based, not saying, oh, if you alter your consciousness in any way, that's sinful or that's pathological. But it's natural. A lot of my work is based on the book uh, Intoxication, the Drive for Mind-Altering Substances by Ronald K. Siegel, who's a UCLA pharmacologist. And his point of view, just to paraphrase, is that drug-taking is as natural as falling in love. It's as natural as sex. And he's saying that altering a consciousness is a drive, just as Freud said, uh, having sex is a drive. And, of course, Freud was extremely controversial when he said sex is a drive because everybody then thought it was either a pathology or a sin. And uh, Siegel may be on the verge of the same thing, you know, discovering a whole new drive. Yeah, I agree. I'm really interested in getting a hold of that book and reading that book. I haven't read that one yet. Um, I'm going to go through the chapters because you have chapter two is about coffee. And you have some yeah. facts about coffee that I bet a lot of people uh, that are listening out there have never heard about. Okay. Some of the history of coffee and the, the prohibition of coffee. Oh, yeah. I, we, we had, the, you know, they had, when, when, when coffee was first brought back, from the new new world, uh, it was looked on as a dangerous drug, uh, and people back then were flogged. They were even beheaded if they were like coffee dealers for doing something that we take for granted nowadays. And the thing is, coffee is a very potent drug. Caffeine is extremely potent. Anybody that's taken to Vibrin. <laughs> we'll, we'll know that uh, because each little caffeine tablet, which is sold in 7-Eleven and may be sold to teenagers, contains 200 milligrams of caffeine. If you take four of them, you could end up in the emergency room. But we've learned how to control our dose of coffee. And we've done that. One of the main reasons we've done that is because it hasn't been criminalized. But I'm sure if you criminalized coffee we'd have a bunch of coffee addicts. (laughs) Well, I think there's no question that there's physical dependence on caffeine. In fact, I know I'm caffeine dependent. It's uh, just like I know I'm not alcohol dependent because I can put alcohol away for, you know, months at a time. You know, my currently I drink two times out of the week and don't drink the other five to six, five or six days. But, you know, if I didn't have my coffee in the morning, I would be going through withdrawal big time, and yet the DSM-4 doesn't have caffeine dependence in it. (laughs) Right. 
Well, what problems does it cause you? Um, I would aside from the fact that I that I need a sleep aid, although I just taken over the counter sleep aid. Um, I would say the only problem is when I stop having withdrawal is the is the is the big problem. I think the you reason. Get a headache is, from that. Oh, I would just about go flying through the wall if I, you know, quit. Not just the headache. I would just go bonkers completely. Oh, really? I'm a very heavy caffeine drinker. I mean, I drink all day long, so I use a lot. But, you know, the thing is, I think that the the psychiatrist... Feel guilty about it? Um, I don't feel guilty about anything anymore. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm in harm reduction. I'm not a guilt person. Um but I think the reason the psychiatrists don't want to put it in the DSM is because then they'd have to give up their morning cup of coffee, and they're not willing to do oh, that. Oh, it is in the DSM. It's one of the drugs under the uh, substance-related disorders. Yeah, it's well, in there, there. There's not caffeine dependence, though. Uh, I'm not sure about the word dependence, but I know that caffeine is in there as one of the uh, substances of abuse. Um, but, I, you know, the thing is, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, the thing is that, uh, you know, there's a difference between, uh, I guess you'd say, addiction uh, in terms of craving and uh, habituation because uh, Pope Leo XIII uh, was known to carry a flask with him at all times, taking sips during the day, every day, well, I don't know, every day, but enough days that people would say, hey, he's doing that every day. <laughs> and it contained uh, Vin Mariani, which you probably well know is a cocaine-laced one. Mm-hmm. So just because somebody does a drug every day doesn't mean they're out of control. Well, it has a lot to, <laughs> it has a lot to do with drug laws, you know. If... Uh, Caffeine were outlawed tomorrow. I'd probably be going to the dealer on the street to get my coffee, you know, because uh, it would not be something that I could stop very easily. But since it's legal, and you know, you don't even have to be over twenty-one to buy coffee, mm-hmm. um, the, you don't see the signs of addiction because you know people can just go into the store and plunk down a couple bucks and get a big jar of instant coffee. Well. Uh... You know, addiction is usually uh, looked at in terms of the uh, harm that's caused by someone needing their drug, you know, in spite of uh, bad consequences for them, they will still take it, right? Right. That's, I mean, that's, uh, you know, what addiction is supposed to be. But couldn't you make the same argument for the early Christians? I mean being addicted to Christianity and being eaten by lions for it and, you know, having their own children being eaten by lions because they believed in something that was so powerful that uh, they needed to defend it with their lives, in a sense. It wasn't uh, drug-induced, but it was a type of euphoria because you could say it was a religious epiphany. 
Well, there are cases to make for uh, religion being a process addiction, like gambling, and we we actually did a couple of shows about that earlier on. We did a show with Andrew Newberg about how religious experiences affect the mind, affect the brain. He's done brain scans of people speaking in tongues. It's really interesting. And another show with Robert Miner we did about religion as an addiction and the negative consequences that uh, some particularly fundamentalist religious religions cause. And I saw there was a recent article in the Scientific American by Andrew Newberg about fund- being born again shrinks the hippocampus. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, what I'm, what I'm saying basically in the book is that uh, we live in a culture which is very prohibitive of personal pleasure. And it's very hard for uh, someone who is labeled an addict to come out and say, hey, I really like doing this drug. It's not a sin and it's not a pathology. It's not because something happened in my childhood, something very traumatic, and now I have to go do it. Now, that's true in some cases, but the whole recovery drug war conglomerate is uh, one that makes it hard for people to that do have a serious problem to identify themselves because there's all these stereotypes and stigmatization of drug users, period. If you're a user of illicit drugs, you're automatically considered an addict. Uh, if you get you know, arrested and there's any kind of drug involvement, you are sent to AA. You have to get your chip signed. So, you know, what I do in the book is I say, let's look at the, the history of all of this. Let's, let's go back and see how Puritanism is affecting our everyday lives in relation to drug abuse. Perhaps the same things that the Puritans have to say about sex are reflected in what current contemporary Puritans say about drugs. You know, at one time, uh, the Puritans were so abhorrent of sex that during uh, intercourse they had to say prayers to keep their mind off the pleasure of it because pleasure was a conduit for the devil. It was satanic, and it had I to be repressed at all times. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't know that one, uh, but I believe that, yeah. Yeah. So we we come from this extremely puritanistic culture, and that's having an effect not only on you know, the current laws, of course, related to drugs, but also on treatment, because mm-hmm. everything is now abstinence-based, you know, total abstinence. And you can have a situation where people can get a hold of their drug use and not have it become problematic if they were allowed to do so. You can't even talk like this. I mean, I'm talking like this on your program because you allow it. But mm-hmm. most programs would not even allow somebody who is critical of the total abstinence purview in treatment. Well, it's a really interesting way they define abstinence. I mean, we know nicotine is the most addictive drug 
at least in the form of cigarettes, it's agreed. Cigarettes are harder to quit than heroin. Extremely addictive. Cigarettes are very damaging. They cause more death than any other drug in the world. But you can smoke cigarettes and you're sober and you're you're abstinent. And how does that doesn't make any sense, you know? <laughs> well, it doesn't make any sense that AA should be so adamant about uh, maintaining total abstinence when St. Bill Williams took LSD for 10 years out of his life. Yeah, that was... That's a fact. Not many oh, people yeah. know about that, mm-hmm. but it happened. And because AA was at that time so abstinent-oriented, it was not politically correct for him to go on and talk about his use of LSD. And, now, if, he, you know, people get so upset. I've had people say, well, I wouldn't know if I would be uh, telling clients that because uh, they might use it as an excuse to go out on a binge. <laughs> you know, what I've found is uh, nobody needs an excuse to go out on a binge. If they want to go out, they're going to go out on a binge. Regardless, they don't need people. Yeah, motivation is everything. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, at one time, masturbation used to be a disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, its cure was breakfast food cereal. I'm oh, that's right. I'm not about that. Yeah, I, but, I, uh, I know. I saw that. That's why they, wasn't that why they invented graham crackers? Well, John Harvey Kellogg uh, Mm -hmm, was the person that originated it, and uh, he uh, said that masturbation, of course, they didn't think the girls masturbated, but boys, and he said that uh, it originated in the gut with uh, a breakfast that would produce constipation. And uh, he said the, the way to solve this was to eat uh, breakfast cereal high in fiber that would evacuate the ball, the, the bowel, and reduce this uh, constipation, this pressure. So, uh, you know, at one time, masturbation was considered a disease, and that's how you relieved it through breakfast cereal. Well, we also have to remember until the 1970s, Homosexuality was a disease in the DSM. Then it was voted out, and it's a lifestyle. Yeah, now it's a lifestyle choice. It's very arbitrary. When people don't like a behavior, when the majority of psychiatrists don't like a behavior, they vote that it's a disease. When they decide they like it, they vote it's not a disease. Well, and that's the way they get paid too, because uh, you have to have a DSM code in order to build an insurance company. Yeah, so for a long time, there was no nicotine dependence in the DSM, and then they decided nicotine is really bad, and then they voted, well, nicotine dependence is now a mental disorder. Mm-hmm. So it's a very arbitrary, very political book, the DSM is. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I wanted to use a talk a little bit about one chapter here you have called Drugs as Sacraments. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's been shown throughout history that uh, drugs have been used as sacraments, particularly the hallucinogenic drugs, because 
at that time, there wasn't a knowledge of biochemistry and so on and so forth. And so when people took something and had these visions, they would consider that it was God speaking with them. And they would act accordingly. Uh, perhaps even some uh, world religions were founded this way. Though in Hinduism, it's uh, the cult of Soma, which they think is behind the whole religion of Hinduism. Um, but you know what's interesting is that uh, there's always been scolds throughout history that have wanted people not to use drugs. And the first scold goes back all the way back to about 2000 BCE. And it was written by an Egyptian priest. He writes to his pupil and says, I, thy superior, forbid thee to go to taverns. Thou art degraded like the beasts. So it wouldn't really matter if it were drugs or whether it was uh, little uh, magnets that people used to get high. The fact that they are getting high, period, is what's unacceptable to the custodians of the Puritan ethos, no matter what religion they are. So uh, that's what I'm I basically focused in on it's how religion does not want people to get high because they might change their mind about the religion or they might choose to have no religion at all. And that's why religion has been a, a formulator of drug policy and drug treatment throughout the United States. That's covered up a lot, but that's what's behind a lot of the torturous therapy that we see. It's religion. You know how religion feels about asking questions. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, we've got about three minutes now to finish up. So I'm going to go to the end of the book. You have chapter 10 is drug craft. What is drug craft? Well, drug craft is using harm reduction principles to stay just as high or higher on less or no drug at all. Okay. In other words, it's saying, okay, you want, it, it's, it's, first of all, it's saying, okay, it's very important how people feel when they use drugs. Let, you know, that's usually been cut out of the equation because people have said, uh, hey, uh, well, you're a drug addict, so you really shouldn't have any feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but if we recognize that and say, you know, it's important that people maintain their steady high, but it's also important that they cut down on their substance use. So if they do use, how can they use in such a way where they can maintain that high without any adverse effects, okay. such as illness or even embarrassment? Okay. And, you know, behind all of this is that, yes, people use drugs, but people also need to be responsible. And we should just throw out responsibility because someone is using so what are some of the ways uh, that people can do this uh, do you have some practical suggestions well yes uh, for example if a person is learning how to drink I would suggest that uh, they purchase a breathalyzer and mm -hmm. uh, they titrate themselves in terms of drinks by how they feel like I've had two drinks I feel relaxed well, I've had three drinks, and I feel happy. I've had four drinks, and I feel high. 
what's my blood alcohol level? And uh, that way they can learn to titrate their feelings with the amount that they consume. That's a good way of managing dose. It's like a regimen in terms of mm-hmm. taking a medicine. Uh, relating feeling to dose. That's something that's not done. Okay, we're just about out of time. Are there any last words that you would like to leave us with? Well, I I guess the last words are that uh, that we're we're kind of stuck in a culture. We use words and we use words to describe drugs. Uh, those drugs are those words are usually metaphors, and those metaphors are cultural. So instead of talking about things like sensations, how we feel, how the drug what, what the drug is doing to us in terms of senses sensations, we talk about it being good or bad or problematic. I suppose uh, any time that you enter any, into any situation where it demands a lot of control, you have to be free of anxiety. And this means being free of guilt. So then you can pay more attention to the sensations the drug is producing, because that's all drugs do. Psychoactive drugs provide sensations. We do all the rest and we interpret them. And that interpretation is based on the set, the psychological set of expectations, and the socio-environmental setting. So we can use set and setting in relation to sensations to control our drug experience. And that way we really will be in control. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Richard Wilmot. The book is American Euphoria. You can get it on Amazon, on Kindle. And next week our guest will be Shiloh Murphy talking about drug user stigma. He's from the People's Harm Reduction Alliance. And we will have Michelle Dunbar from St. Jude Retreat House to talk about what is probably the most successful uh, rehab program in the country, and it's not on a disease model. So come back and talk, and come back and listen next week. Thanks, everyone, and good night. Good night.